All right. Well, this is a great, great book, and you're in for a great semester. You need to be faithful to stick this thing out all the way to Christmas. This is going to be a book that will leave you with probably the most important biography in the Bible. Save Jesus Christ himself. Here is someone, and think about this, the time in Scripture where you have God say, I'm seeking a man after my own heart to put on the throne. He becomes the, 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 the template for what everyone is looking forward to as we're halfway from Abraham to Christ when they anticipate the Messiah. Prophet after prophet, there's going to be the son of David that's going to sit on the throne. Some go even further. David will one day again sit on the throne. Whether that's a resurrected David or not, we're not sure. But what, a, what an amazing thing to be a figure that is presented to us in this book with all of these intricacies of his life. You can get in his sandals. You can understand him. This is a... Uh, this is a really, really good book. So don't miss this. Please make a commitment to be here from week to week to discuss his life. It's one of the greatest opportunities we have to glean from a person that God has held up as an example. Don't let anybody tell you we shouldn't take examples of biblical characters and not use them as examples for our lives. 1 Corinthians 10 says that things in the Old Testament were written down as examples for us. And it holds up bad examples in 1 Corinthians 10 and in the book of 2 Samuel, we have a fantastic, good example. Now, every week we're going to be dealing with just a section of the book at a time, as you know. But I get the unique opportunity to start this semester by the 30,000-foot view and looking at his life. And since our series is called The Throne of David, I want to talk about that role that he fulfilled. And all of us, in one way or another, need to glean from his life something about how God would have us fulfill our role in this world. So I want us to consider... David as a leader. God has called you to lead. And you need to think through how this particular template, as we get the 30,000-foot view of his life, can be an example, a motivation, and an encouragement for you to lead. Now, every week, we'll build more of a picture of his life. We'll learn a lot about things we shouldn't do, things that God was doing, his covenant promises. But tonight, let me just give you 10 quick things that will give us a sense of how we should, I hope, leave tonight and leave this uh, semester as we go into the new year next year with a sense of how we can be the kinds of leaders that God might look at us and say, there's a man after my own heart right there. All right? Number one, this should come as a very simple observation for all of us. You and I need to get used to leading. Get used to leading because you are called to lead. Now, that's not just some kind of motivation, some sales meeting or what. You are called to lead because the Bible says in the very first chapter of the Bible that you were created to exercise dominion, to exercise leadership, to exercise some kind of organizing, intelligent input into your world where you leave it better than when you came. You are called to lead. And so it was, of course, that David was called to lead. And that's what this book is all about, David's leadership and the promises God made based on that template to bring Christ into the world to show us the ultimate leadership. But in terms of human beings, here is a leader that we can learn from. You're a leader, I suppose, in several areas of your life. Even if you had no relationships, if you even had no uh, you know, marketable skills, you're the, at the lowest rung of, of the employee chain, you, know, you still are called to exercise leadership. But most of you aren't there. As a matter of fact, most of you uh, have all kinds of leadership. Let's start with your home. 
Uh, just because God has taken the genders, clearly divided responsibilities, the responsibility he gives you, jot this reference down if you don't know it, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 3. Listen how strong this is. Now, they're not teaching this with any kind of glee next door in the women's Bible study, but here it comes. 1 Corinthians eleven three. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ. He's our boss. He's in charge. The head of, every, of a wife, rather, is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. Listen to that. I want you to understand that the head of every man is Christ, the head of a wife is her husband, and the head of Christ is God. There is a tiered set of responsibilities of leadership, which is not being authoritarian, but certainly entrusting you with authority. You're a leader in your home. Obviously, you have a leadership over your children, and you need to understand that you are a leader in that sphere as you are at work, I'm sure. Colossians 4.1 speaks to leaders and it reminds us as leaders in the workplace that you have a leader in heaven that's watching how you lead. As we'll see throughout the book of 2 Samuel, David was being watched closely. And as a Christian, you need to know, even if you had no important role over any employee or you have no wife, you have no children, the Bible says that we as a church and as individuals a part of that church are salt and light. We have an effect on everything around us. Jot this reference down, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7 says that there is a restraining force in this world that is going to be taken away and the man of lawlessness is going to appear on the world scene. But right now, he's restrained because of us. We have a job to do in our world, in our society. You're a leader in your family, I assume. You're a leader at work, at least in some corner of your company and your job's uh, oversight, and you're certainly a leader in our society. As Matthew 5 says, salt and light, it makes a difference, and the difference you're to make is to be an influence, a preserving influence, an illuminating influence for Christ in this world. So get used to leading. Don't shy away from that. Number two, and this is important as I think about David, listen carefully to this psalm that David writes in Psalm 78.7. 7870, rather. 7870. David says, I'm sorry, it says about David. David was chosen, right, as a servant, taken from the sheepfolds, from following the nursing ewes. He brought him to shepherd Jacob. That's a nickname for the people of God. And Israel, his inheritance. With an upright heart, he shepherded them and guided them with a skillful hand, going from a shepherd to being the king. Right when 1 Samuel chapter 15, we studied last semester, spoke of Samuel coming to David, uh, here was the statement, the prophetic statement, though you are little in your own eyes, right, uh, and, and not the head of the tribes of Israel, the Lord anointed you king over Israel. That was a statement to Saul, rather, and it was also then given to David in a very uh, non-conspicuous way. Saul, head and shoulders above everyone else, he was seen as the leader. Everyone thought this is the perfect kind of leader. As a matter of fact, in that showdown in the Battle of Elah, where the famous uh, David and Goliath scene took place, here is Saul, who should be the warrior that somehow mirrors the Philistine warrior, taller, bigger than everyone else, and yet David steps up as a shepherd after being anointed by Samuel, and he becomes a leader, the kind of leader God takes from the most uh, you know, inconspicuous place to be a leader in Israel. You just need to be open, number two, here's how I put it, to where you'll lead. I don't know where God will take you, but something we say often around here at Compass Bible Church is you better be at a pat. You better say to, you better say to God uh, that I'll do anything, any place, at any time. 
And if you say that to God, I assure you, God's eyes are going to and fro throughout the whole earth, looking for someone whose heart is fully his. And he wants to take those people and put them in places where they'll be useful for God. And that kind of, of, of willingness on our part to be taken from wherever we're at to some other place is fundamental to the Christian life. When you signed up to follow Christ, I hope you said anything, any place, any time. This semester, as you think about David being a leader, I want you to say, God, whatever leadership position you'd like me to have, no matter where it is, no matter if it's different than what I have now, whether it's a different zip code, a different place, a different job, a different role in church, I want to be willing. I want to be ready. I want to be flexible and say, God, I'm willing to go wherever you'd like me to go. Let me say this. Your view of what you think you will do in terms of leadership in this world, leadership in the church, even leadership in your job, may not be where God wants to take you. And when it comes to leadership, a lot of people are hungry to be leaders in positions that God has not called them for. Being flexible and adipat is saying, I'm willing to have you move me up, move me back, move me laterally, move me down, wherever you'd like me to go, I will go. The Bible says that this is a clear expression of our humility before God. That we are ready to say, I'll be used in any, any way, any place, in any capacity. Jesus said in Luke 14, 10, when you're invited somewhere, sit in the lowest place so that when your host comes, he can say to you, friend, move up higher. That picture is certainly more than speaking just to the social norms of the first century. But if you're willing to say to God, I'll do anything you want me to do, I assure you he'll hand you a position that probably will not be the stopping point for your ministerial or leadership over other people. God wants you to be willing and he'll move you to whatever place he'd like to take you. David was faithful in a little and God made him faithful in much. And when, by the way, he does tap on your shoulder and say, it's time for you to move up. It's time for you to move in a greater sphere of influence somewhere, whether at work or in ministry or whatever it might be, you need to be able to say, Unlike Jeremiah in chapter 1, I don't think I can do that. I preach on this often, but God has a way of taking guys like Gideon who have no military experience, they're from a small and weak clan, and say, I need you to deliver the people. He says to people like Jeremiah, a young prophet, I want you to go and speak for me in this sphere. He says to people like Moses, I know you have a speech impediment, you don't speak clearly, you're not gifted, I'm going to gift you, I'm going to be with your mouth. God is going to put you in situations, and I tell you, there's not enough of this in the church. I try to remind our leaders, and we're working on it. Certainly our pastors know this. When it comes to leadership, it's not putting an ad in the bulletin saying, hey, does anyone want to do this? It's, it's tapping you on the shoulder, or more like Christ, putting his finger in your chest and saying, we need you over here. Please don't turn away from those kinds of things. It may be you say no eventually, but be open to the fact that God may put some kind of calling on your life to do more in a more challenging situation in the future than you're doing right now. Be willing, and that's great. And I find a lot of willing guys in our church that want to be useful to God, not just in their work life, but in our church, and that's great. But be real responsive when God puts the call on your life to do more than what you're currently doing. Be open. Be adipat. Whether it's family, work, or ministry, be ready to have the host, which is God, call you up to a new place and a new position. Don't balk at that. Don't refuse it when you're called. Most importantly, if you look at uh, David's life, I'd like you to turn to this one. We are at a Bible study. We haven't turned anywhere yet. Ten points. I can't take you in depth to ten passages, but let me take you at least to this one. 2 Samuel chapter 23. I almost 
by the time I, I got this assignment, started looking at, at 2 Samuel, I almost wanted to just preach on this, this, this look back, this retrospective of David at his life, but I would steal that teaching from whoever is assigned that in the future, so I didn't choose to do that. But I certainly wanted to pick up how he viewed his life in looking back on who he was. David's last words, you can see that title at the beginning of chapter 23, reminds us of his leadership philosophy. This is our third point. Let's start in verse 2. The Spirit of the Lord speaks by me, and his word is on my tongue. David understands his role as a prophet. He understands that God is using him to speak the word in a fresh way to a generation being codified in books and sayings and songs that would be useful uh, for God's people as revelation. Uh, and we may not have that as our um, philosophy of leadership, clearly. You're not a prophet. Uh, but we all are reiterative prophets. We are all to have, and you see that phrase, his word on my tongue. All of us should have that as our commitment. The word of God should, in, should dwell in us richly, obviously. And verse 3 says, the God of Israel has spoken. And he speaks through David, and David is subject to the very things that he's prophesying. The rock of Israel has said to me, when one rules justly over men, ruling in the fear of the Lord, he dawns on them like the morning light, like the sun shining forth on a cloudless morning like rain that makes grass to sprout on the earth. He sees the victories and the positive successes of his, of his leadership ministry as coming back to, I fear the Lord, which is built upon, predicated upon the fact that God's word is coming through me and God's word is the thing that governs me. It's all that I'm about. And if you start thinking about the Psalms that he wrote, think about one, for instance, Psalm 19. He says things like this about the word. The commandment of the Lord is pure. It enlightens the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean or pure. It endures forever. The rules of the Lord are true and they're righteous. You should desire them more than gold, more than fine gold, sweeter than honey, the drippings of the honeycomb. The Bible is the guide for leadership in David's life. Of course, he's producing some of that himself through his own pen, particularly as he writes many of the Psalms. Number three, let me put it this way. No matter what your calling in life is, you need to see the Bible as your philosophical compass. I put it this way. You need to lead with a biblical compass. The Bible is what must saturate your decisions, whether you're a salesman, a manager, a Sunday school teacher, or a leader in any area of your life. If God's word is not in you governing your leadership, then we're missing out on exactly what makes for successful leadership, not in the eyes of the world, perhaps, but in the eyes of God. And I know this, certainly in the eyes of Christian men. The Christian men, I hope that you look to for leadership in your life. The people that you read in biographies in church history that you admire, that you say, I'd like to replicate that, as the Bible says you should, taking note of people and mimicking their behavior. It ought to be those, and it is those I trust, if you're a clear-sighted Christian who have governed their own lives by the biblical compass. The Bible has to be the thing that directs your life. David makes that clear throughout the Psalms. I th actually think he wrote Psalm 119, though that's not stated in the text itself. There's plenty of clues in that. But if you're not reading, studying, memorizing, and meditating on God's word, you will not be much of a leader, at least not in God's book. You may be a leader in the eyes of other people, like Saul was, but you'll never be a man after God's own heart, being useful in God's kingdom as it extends into your everyday life lives. James 4.12 says there's only one lawgiver and judge who's able to save and destroy. There's only one lawgiver and judge. God set the rules and he will one day evaluate all of us based on that. My leadership means nothing and your leadership in any area of life means nothing 
if it's in some way contradicting a book that will become the final test of your life. It is the measure of your life. And so it is that we cannot govern and make any leadership decisions without the word of God being our, our compass. Today, unfortunately, we have lots of people leading by the desires of their own lives. The imagination, as Jeremiah 23 says, of their own minds. They don't stand in the counsel of the Lord. They don't see and hear his word. They pay no attention to what he has revealed. This was the condemnation of the nation of Israel as they slid under their leaders into the Babylonian captivity. It is those that have the word of God and make decisions regardless of how popular they might be that God says that's the kind of leadership we need. You need to lead with a biblical compass. The word of God needs to be the reactionary thought in your mind. It needs to be the thing in which every opportunity, every situation, every new vista of your life is measured and evaluated, whether it's a raise or a job promotion, whether it's a lateral move to another place, whatever it might be, the word of God has to be our compass. You should name a church that. That would be a good church name, I think. Number four. Number four. Probably the most famous passage in David's life or scenes in David's life came from our study last year in 1 Samuel 17. And it is something that I think will remind us of something that David wrote in Psalm 69 as he stood in the Valley of Elah. And you remember that as he runs toward the battle line. Psalm 69.9, I'm about to quote it for you and you're going to think, I know who said that because it's applied in the New Testament and put in the mouth of a biblical character who recited it. But this is the Psalm of David, Psalm 69.9. It says, for the zeal of your house has consumed me and the reproaches of those who reproached you have fallen on me. David says, I'm so zealous for you and your house, for everything that that place represents, your name. And when people are insulting me, reproaching me, I'm sorry, reproaching you, it's as though they're reproaching me. When something in any way dishonors you or disrespects you, I feel personally disrespected. I am, here's another way to put it throughout the Bible, let's put it this way, I am jealous for your name. I'll put it this way, number four. You need to, I worded this in a way that should make you think, it may not be apparent on the surface, but let me put it this way, you need to lead toward God's honor. Let's think about it that way. I need to lead, whether it's in my home, with my wife, or my children, or if I'm in a position of leadership in a work situation, I want to lead in a way that is toward God's honor. I want to lead in a way that, here's a good word, zealous. I am zealous for God's reputation. I'm standing up for God's standards. That's not hard to think of if uh, it's a loved one in your life, if it's your child or your wife. If you think about your wife, if your wife were insulted by the behavior of people that are in your home, uh, you would you'd take umbrage to that. You'd be immediately offended by that. If you love your wife, you should be. You'd be defensive for the honor of your wife in any situation. Right? You would do that for your children. If someone's in your home and they're disrespecting your family, you, I trust, would be uh, zealous. You'd burn even with a righteous anger to do what you can to defend and protect your family. That's the way that David led. Remember when he was there in the Valley of Elah and the thing that got him riled up looking for five smooth stones? What was it? He was defying the armies of Israel. Here was a Philistine who was defying the armies of Israel, the God of Israel, and he, he, he couldn't handle that. His brother said, I ought to go home, right? Which, by the way, was the brother who everyone thought in Jesse's family would be named the king. There was a little bit of frustration and jealousy, I'm sure, in his part, just like there was with Joseph's brothers in, in uh, 
in, in Genesis 40. But the idea of us recognizing that David was motivated by God's jealousy uh, should be something that you and I ought to recognize. Everything that I want to do in leadership, no matter what it is, is heading in, in, in the direction of trying to bring honor and better reputation to God. That's what I care about. In any, in any situation, in my home life, if I'm going to make a decision, I just want this in some way to move my family toward honoring God, to move my children toward honoring God more, my finances to honor God more than that. The decisions I make should be zealous for God. Phineas is a good example of that, the grandson of Aaron the priest back in Numbers 25. It's an interesting story. You remember when there was a defiance of God's moral law and uh, no one seemed to care. And Phineas, the priest, took a spear and went and killed this defiant Israelite who was just basically saying, I don't care what God says, which is pretty much the culture we live in all over the place. And I'm not suggesting you kill people at work this week, but I am saying you should have the kind of offense that was clearly there, bubbling up over the surface in Phineas's life. If I read that for the first time, and I'm thinking as a sensible person in our day, and I'm thinking, wow, that guy's going to be in trouble for taking the law in his own hands. After he does this, and he, he kills this man for defying God, Numbers 25, 11, and this is a priest, a pastor, if you will, it says that Phinehas, the son of Eleazar, the son of Aaron, the priest, had turned back my wrath, God says, from the people of Israel. I mean, I'm bringing a plague on the people. Because he was jealous for my jealousy among them. Therefore, I didn't consume the people of Israel in my zeal. That idea of a man who cares enough about whether God is being dishonored by the way your family is spending their time, whether or not my office is, is discrediting God, whether there's his name being used in vain in my presence, whatever it might be, the zealousness for God's honor and reputation needs to drive my leadership. I trust you'd be jealous for your family's relation or your family's reputation. And I just want us to care much, much more about the reputation of God. Let me read for you Psalm 106, 28. This was the scene being recalled in the Psalms. They sang this about Phineas. They yoked themselves to Baal of Peor. That's what they were doing in this great period of, of, of apostasy. And they were offering, or ate rather, the sacrifices that were offered to the dead. And they provoked the Lord to anger with their deeds. And a plague broke out among them. Then Phineas stood up and intervened. And the plague was stayed, and it was counted to him as righteousness from generation to generation. Here was a statement from the inspired songbook that this guy gained his position as a righteous man, in this case, a righteous spiritual leader, because he was zealous for God's honor. You need to lead toward God's honor with a zealousness to honor God in what is going on in your sphere of influence, in your sphere of leadership. Number five. One thing, of course, that will be the most painful study, I suppose, of David's life will be his fall into sin with Bathsheba. 2 Samuel 11, we'll get there, and I'm sure this will be preached with um, a poignancy in a day which we live in, Sodom and Gomorrah, where the lusts of the flesh are fueled in our lives every single day. The beginning of that chapter starts this way. If you're still in 2 Samuel, go to 2 Samuel chapter 11, verse 1. And perhaps we're reading between the lines here, but I think there's good reason for it if you understand the sin of David and really what drives the rebuke of Nathan in the next chapter, chapter 12. 
Look at chapter 11, verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all of Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. Now, you've probably heard this preached before. If not, there's a connection often made that David wouldn't even be there able to sit there and lounge around on the top of his palace looking across the street into Bathsheba's place where she's bathing and having a, a voyeuristic moment and calling for her in his royal authority to come over and to engage in an adult, adulterous relationship. None of that would have happened had he been out to war. Now, there may have been good reason for that. I suppose when we get there and meet David, I don't want to bring the topic up, but we'll find out why he wasn't out to battle. But look across the page at chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse number 4. In the middle of Nathan's rebuke, here's what he said. Now, there was a traveler to the rich man, and he was unwilling to take one of his own flock or herd to prepare for the guest who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb, and he prepared it for the man who had come. You know the story. Here's a picture that Nathan wisely paints of someone taking one guy's little ewe lamb when he's got a whole herd uh, you know, a flock that he could choose from. And that outraged David, as it would any of us, thinking, how arrogant of you. How, I mean, how incredibly insensitive of you. Why would you do that? And, and I think we would only say that a prideful person would do such a thing. Here's one thing we see in the wake of David's sin against Bathsheba, as I'm sure will be brought up when we deal with this text in men's Bible study, is that the thing that this did is it drove him to his knees in a new level of humility. I know in God's sovereignty, one reason that this uh, up-and-coming leader who other kings had the same trajectory and ended so poorly, wiping out their whole ministry and their whole lives, was because of pride. And God is opposed to the proud. Here's a moment of lustful in indulgence that God in his providence allows in David's life, and it drives him back to the most humility he's ever had, the kind of humility that leads him to the leadership principle that all of us need, that God is opposed to the proud, but he gives his favor. He gives his grace to the humble. When you lead, you need to, number five, is it? You need to, to, to lead humbly. This is the real challenge because the world will call you prideful if you're zealous for God's name, if you're willing to put yourself out there to direct other people in whatever the, the realm might be. If you're a resolute kind of, 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 of committed, principled leader, people will call you arrogant and prideful. But only God knows what's going on in your heart, right? We need to understand, the, you know, God looks at the outward appearance, literally in Hebrew, looks at your face, people look at your face, but God looks internally at the center of your, of your being, your heart. And that picture needs to be inside of my life that though people may have all kinds of wrong opinions about me, I need to be a humble leader, a kind of leader that recognizes as, second, as 1 Corinthians chapter 12 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 says that whoever thinks he stands better take heed lest he fall. You know that in the moment that David sat there and sent his commander Joab out to battle and, and hung around, he just did not see himself as an adultering, uh, uh, adulterous murderer. And yet that's what he ended up being. That's what he ended up doing. And, and so it is that if we don't recognize, as the next verse says in 1 Corinthians 10, that there's no temptation that's overtaking you except that which is common to man. The same problem that the guy on the street in Jerusalem had was the same problem that the king in the palace had, the same weaknesses and the same temptations. 
And if you don't have that trepidation about yourself falling and taking your leadership completely down to the bottom rung in your kid's life, in your wife's life, in the people in your Bible study's life, it is a reality. It's a real possibility because of the weakness that's inherent in the flesh. We need to lead humbly. That does not change the power or the decisiveness or the resolution of our leadership, but it changes the thing that God can see. David wrote a great line, two verses in Psalm 139, verses 23 and 24. And it's something we should, actually it's recorded twice in two of his Psalms. But he says, search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my thoughts. That's what other people can't see. See if there's any grievous way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. You need to be willing to pray that prayer about everything in your life. And say, God, there's weaknesses in my heart, in my, or, sorry, in my flesh. I need you to know what's going on in my heart. See if there's anything in there that, that, that is prideful. Eliab said to David in the Valley of Elah, go home. We know why you're here. You're just being, paraphrased, a prideful kid who wants to come out and see the battle. He was being called prideful when he was out there saying, who's going to take down Goliath? He wasn't prideful. He wasn't prideful at all, but he was a decisive leader a decisive leader who was zealous for God's name. Well, at this particular point, he had no zeal for God's name. He wasn't leading toward God's honor. But what he learned in all of this is he can't be a prideful leader. David falls hard, I think in part, because he'd gotten to the place where he was above leading the troops into battle. And that's a kind of, hum that's kind of pride the Bible says God is going to oppose. Lead humbly, know your weaknesses, recognize the diagnosis of your own heart may even be hidden from you without the prayer that you need to be asking God, know me, try me, see if there's any wicked way in me. So much more from 2 Samuel 11 when we get to it in our study. That ought to be one of the most important, transparent conversations we have in small group. We need each other to work through these challenges as we live like Lot in Sodom and Gomorrah. Number six. After Nathan rebukes David, one of the Psalms that he writes, it's clearly stated that way in the superscription of Psalm 51. David writes this. Matter of fact, this one's worth turning to. Look at what's going on in the way he responds. Not only is he humble. Here's another. I was going to put these together, but I tease these apart because I think it's important to not only say, yes, we got to be humble leaders, which does not mean milquetoast leaders. It does not mean we're not decisive leaders. But humble in our heart knowing that we are frail. We are weak. We could fall just like anyone else there, but for the grace of God go I, that old line, helpful in terms of seeing our own weakness. Psalm 51, drop down to verse number 11. Knowing he sinned, he's confessed before Nathan. That's the superscription of this psalm. He says, now cast me not away from your presence, right? Which for him was not, you're no longer going to be my God, but in the presence of God, symbolically there at the house of God, this tabernacle that had been taken with the ark to the old city of the Jebusites and soon would be where Solomon built his temple for the uh, ark of the covenant. He doesn't want the Holy Spirit taken from him and it's not doesn't mean you can't take a new covenant view of the Holy Spirit and say, you know, we lose our salvation in a passage like this. That was the statement that was made throughout 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 and 2 Chronicles regarding the Spirit of the Lord coming upon kings for their position of leadership. Uh, they were, you know, he had a kingship. He didn't want to lose that position of ministry before God to the people of Israel. And then he says this, restore to me the joy of your salvation. I'd like to be back where I was before. Now, this is interesting. 
and uphold me. God, I'd like you to uphold me with a willing spirit. I'd like to be willing. I'd like to be willing and flexible and, and submissive to your will. If you do that, see, this is a contingency. If you would do that, if you would uphold me, then I will teach transgressors, transgressors your ways. And, and sinners will return to you. I'll be a good shepherd of the people, spiritually even. God, deliver me from blood guiltiness. Oh God, oh God, my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. That's a conditional statement. You've got to deliver me and then I'll sing and this will happen. Lord, open my lips. If you do that, then my mouth will declare your praise. Here's how I'd like to put it. Number six, we need to lead, and this is tightly connected to the fifth, the fifth point. The sixth point though, we need to lead, lead dependently. And now this is getting around to your prayer life. This is leading to the place of knowing I cannot be successful in my family, in my job, in my church leadership. I can't do any of that successfully if I don't recognize your active involvement in my work. Without you, I can do nothing. That's the picture. Drop down to verse 18 as long as you still got Psalm 51 open. Listen to this. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Now I know this is a poetic statement in a song. But that was David's job. See, David's job was to secure the borders. He was a military guy. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Establish this city and this kingdom. And he's saying, God, I need you to do that. Now, this is not giving up. This is not becoming a passive person in the, in the capital building, in, in the palace. This is, though, recognizing if this is going to happen, you're going to have to accomplish this for me. You're going to have to do this through me. David's job, but he knows God has got to accomplish. Then, again, another conditional statement, you'll delight in right sacrifices, burnt offerings, whole offerings, bulls will be offered on your altar. Here's a reference to jot down if you're taking notes. Psalm 4, 8. Psalm 4, 8. Sounds like Solomon's uh, psalm in Psalm 127, unless the Lord builds the house. But listen to David. In peace I will lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. Can you say that about your parenting? Can you say that about your marriage? Can you say that about your workplace? Can you say that about whether or not you're going to you know, do anything in, 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 spir in spiritual work in the lives of anyone? God, if you don't do this, it won't be done. I say Solomon because Solomon was the writer of Psalm 127. Unless the, the Lord guards the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. There's a sense of sovereign dependence on God. That's reflected in your praying. It's intertwined with humility. But David had that. He had it here. It took a little bit uh, of, I mean, it took a real, it wasn't a little bit, a big, dark season of his life to state that as eloquently and profoundly as he did. David knew he had to depend on God for success. Here's another Psalm of David, Psalm 1834. He trains my hands for war so that my arms can bend a, a, a bow of bronze. You've given me a shield of salvation. Your right hand supported me. Your gentleness, your kindness made me great. You've made a wide place, and, and, and you've made a wide place for my steps underneath me so that my feet did not slip. Those are the kinds of statements of a person who knows that any success is a success that God allows, that God empowers, that God grants. We need much more time. I have it on my prayer list. When I go through my prayer list, be thankful today. And, and that's not just like, you know, butterfly journals and daisies. It's not just trying to be happy, you know, like a teenage girl or something. This is like, be thankful because anything good that's happened in your life, right? Every good and perfect gift has come from God. Praying a prayer of thanksgiving every day is a, is a spiritual discipline in prayer to learn to recognize that all these good things that we're praying for, deciding for, leading toward 
They're all things that come from God. The, the chronicler put it this way. First Chronicles 11.9. This is a great one. David became greater and greater. Here's the, the commentary. For the Lord of hosts was with him. Why? He became greater because God was with him. God sees that perspective. If you've had a raise, you've had a promotion, you're doing well in life, you've got money in the bank, you've got a car that runs, you've got a family that's intact. The Bible says that greatness, which is great, it's a gift from the Lord. doesn't mean that David didn't go out and train his hands for, for battle. He did. He trained his hands for war. But he said, you know, I only learned to do this well because God has given it to me. There's a lot of you, including myself, that could work hard on trying to sing a great solo this week and say, hey, Joseph, Keith, let me get on the stage and sing. We could have the best teachers come and train us, and you'd never be able to do it, right? Some of you would. I understand that. But some of you wouldn't. And, and you have to recognize that every gift that's developed in leadership in your life, everything that you do, it's all given to you as a sovereign gift from God. To some he gives, and to some he gives more. But all of it is something that should, lead, should help us to lead independence. Those two things, number five and number six, may be the difference between you being all of the leader that God would have you be or being stunted in some area in your life, spiritually, professionally, because God does not see you as a humble, dependent person. You can be a non-Christian and not be humble. Uh, you can be a non-Christian and not be dependent. Clearly, they don't see the connection between God's gifts and his prosperity in God. But you cannot be a Christian leader. You cannot be a Christian and be successful in God's economy without those two things. A humble dependence. You need to lead humbly. You need to lead dependently. Jot the reference down. I don't have time for this one, but a great homework assignment. Second Corinthians 3 one through six, the apostle Paul is so confident in his leadership, but his confidence is not because he thinks he's all that. He says, we're commending ourselves, but we're not commending ourselves in the way the world commends itself. We recognize that this competence comes from God. We have great confidence, but the competence comes from God. We can't claim that anything comes from us. I know you hear that tossed around, but that needs to be part of your prayer life, your devotional life, your spiritual disciplines. Number seven, you saw this in 1 Samuel, I, I thought most dramatically in chapter 19, David had been anointed the king, he'd been designated the king, he'd gone out and fought the, the big Philistine warrior, and yet still as a musician in the house of Saul the king, Saul, almost like a you know, demon-possessed person, a demonized person, he starts like a robot going after and attacking David. Here's the passage you studied last semester, 1 Samuel 19. 9. There was a harmful spirit came upon Saul, and he took his spear in his hand, and he tried to pin David against the wall. Remember that? While he's playing music, right? You, got to, you hired a jazz musician, and you're trying to kill him. It's just it's, it's nonsensical. Why? Because Satan is against David. We'll see that again as we get to the end of 1 Samuel, near the end, first Sam, or 2 Samuel, rather, uh, when David numbers the troops. That's 2 Samuel 24, the last chapter that we'll study before Christmas. 1 Chronicles 21 commentates on that, and it says it was Satan that stood against Israel and incited David to number Israel. Now, 2 Samuel 24 says it's all under God's sovereign plan, and it was very important that God do this for his high reasons, but... The agency, the immediate agency of this was Satan attacking David. Think of him with Bathsheba. Do you think he ever would have called to have her come over? Do you think he ever would have disrobed her 
and had an adulterous affair? Do you think he ever would have taken his commander and sent her husband, Uriah, out to the, if Satan were involved in, weren't involved in that? I mean, this isn't, you know, for you old, old guys, this isn't the Flip Wilson, the devil made me do it line, but it is an idea that you need to get clearly in your mind that Satan goes around, 1 Peter 5, like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. He'd love for you to cheat on your wife. He'd love for you to do something unethical at work. He'd love for you to do things that would disqualify you from any significant ministry. Those are the kinds of things Satan would love to do. But you need to lead. You need to lead humbly and dependently despite all of that. Number seven, we need to lead despite the opposition. And you're going to have a lot of it from Satan. Now, again, that sounds mystical and all that, like we have to have Ouija boards out and ghosts under the bed. But you know that Satan works because he has his emissaries. He has his people. You don't think that was satanically orchestrated, whether it was numbering the troops, whether it was sleeping with Bathsheba, or whether it was Saul picking up a spear and trying to kill him. These are human agents that's brought on by the spiritual agency of the enemy. And there will be plenty of opposition to godly leadership. You try to even say to your family, we're not going to watch that anymore. We're not going to subscribe to that. We're not going to do that. We're, I care about the, the honor of God in our home. Think about that. You're going to get pushback even from the people you love the most. You try to do that in any sphere of leadership where you try to, to, to govern righteously, you're going to have pushback. Any leadership directed toward God's honor is going to be opposed by our enemy. Think about Job, right? Job was doing just fine as a godly man. His family was doing just fine. And just because of his godliness, he was put on the map. One of the scariest passages in the New Testament, Acts 19, 15, the sons of Sceva, this high priest, you remember that passage? The evil spirits speak, and it's kind of a creepy scene, but they say, Jesus I know and Paul I recognize, but who are you? I mean, it's a backhanded insult from these demons to the seven sons of Sceva. But what I'm noticing in the passage is, I wish if I were Paul that they didn't know me, but they do. Because anything you try to do in leadership for the Lord, in your business, in your home, in your church, is going to get the enemy's attention. So you can, you can fail to be a leader. You can uh, abdicate your role and try and avoid the spiritual battle, but you're going to get to the Bema seat. And that isn't going to go well for you or for me. So be sober-minded. Be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. Resist him and stand firm in your faith. And that point is do what God has called you to do. Trust him for your role. It may be unpopular. It may be opposed. But do it. I assure you that the more you lead in the direction of God's honor, the more opposition you'll get and sometimes from people you never thought you'd get it from. Jesus had his Judas, David had his Absalom, Shimei was throwing rocks at him in chapter 15, famine was coming on the land in chapter 21 of 2 Samuel. There's a lot of opposition you're going to face. Things are going to happen in your life, and you can see it ultimately as God's sovereignty to prepare you for something in terms of your character or trials or testing, but the immediate agency of the kinds of things in your life that will cause you great grief, that will make you wonder whether or not you should keep pushing in the direction of God's honor are going to be satanically motivated. We don't battle against flesh and blood, ultimately. We're battling about, against something behind all of that. Number eight, 2 Samuel chapter 3. Not that we need that in our book. We've already got a lot of the taste of number eight in the first book, 1 Samuel. But if you've got that Samuel still open and handy, look at chapter 3, verse 1. And the problem is I wrote an article on this once about how we read these biblical time markers and we just blow right past them without feeling what they were like. 
Look at this, 2 Samuel 3, verse 1. There was a long war between the house of Saul and the house of David. Now, this is 2 Samuel 3. Saul is dead, right, from the last chapter of the, of the book we studied last semester. David grew stronger and stronger. We quoted this, right, in, from the Chronicles' perspective. But the, Saul, the, the house of Saul got weaker and weaker. We know he was getting stronger because God was with him. And I'm thinking, if God is with you, then why don't you just you know, annihilate my opposition. But God doesn't do that. Matter of fact, it's a long protracted war. Do you know that David as a boy, teenage boy, was anointed with the anointed oil, anointing oil. Then he went out, next big scene, in the Valley of Elah and he kills Goliath. And you're thinking, okay, he's going to immediately become the king of, of Israel. He doesn't become the king of Israel, right? He, he, he goes in to, the, to the cave of Adelam. The caves were places you went to the bathroom in, right? This is a place that's a porta potty. And he's there living in the toilets, if you will, of the ancient world, while he's got 400 guys that I love the way the NAS describes them. They're malcontents. They're just the worst, right? They're, they're just the people that are just mad. They, they're overtaxed. They have money. They're just try, they're rebels. And, and that's, his, that's his leadership. He's been anointed the king. God, where are you in all this? And it may be that God is calling you to some kind of, of difference in this world, in your job, in your home, in the ministry that you have in the church, and God wants to take you somewhere, and you're thinking, if God wants me to go there, why is it taking so long? Number eight, you need to lead patiently. If you're not patient, then you're not understanding anything about a man after God's own heart. Don't think God doesn't like you because he's not opening doors quickly enough to see you carry out the honorable plans and the, and the zealous leadership decisions you have for his honor in this world. I mean, it was really sad when David becomes the king, even after David's, or Saul's death rather, It took him 15 years from his anointing till he became king over Judah and seven more years. You could put that in the margin of 2 Samuel 3. It took him seven years until he reigned over the whole house of Israel or Ephraim as we say sometimes. Ephraim and Judah, the north and the south. 22 years. That's a long time. It's a long time not seeing God deliver on what you think is his plan for your life. We make a lot of plans, and they're good plans, and God is in them, and God blesses them, but he blesses them a lot more slowly than you and I want. God's timetable is going to be different than yours, I can assure you of that. Sometimes he thrusts you into a place of leadership quickly, and sometimes he's got a plan for you in terms of making a difference in this world. He takes you there very slowly. 1 Samuel chapter 17 was obviously the most courageous thing we've ever seen in the Old Testament in terms of a little kid going up against a gigantic guy dressed in all of his armor. That was a courageous act of leadership. Don't miss in 2 Samuel, though, of your study of this book, how courageous his leadership was from place to place, chapter to chapter, dramatic scene to dramatic scene. David is a man of courage. He's willing to lead in the direction of godliness, even when Shimei is throwing rocks at him and cursing him. He's willing to say, as, as people, the sons of Zeruiah say, why don't we just go kill him? He says, listen, we're not going to kill them. Maybe, maybe this is what I deserve right now. The courage in saying something like that doesn't look like him standing in the shadow of Goliath. But that's a courageous act of willingness and submission to the sovereignty and leadership of God. Number nine, we need to lead fearlessly. You need to not be afraid. Whether things go slowly, in a good direction, whether you take a left turn and a detour in your life, your health, your money... You just need to be unafraid. 
He knew it was God's will when he stood in the shadow of Goliath because he was zealous for God's honor. And I love the way he ran quickly to the battle there. We saw in 1 Samuel 17. But as I said in 2 Samuel 23, we started there in David's retrospective back on his ministry. And I read this to you. He said, when one rules justly over men, that's when we see this morning light and all that, ruling in the fear of God. See, we've taught on this so often. One time we did a, the Proverbs study. We talked about the fear of God. Nothing will scare you if the only thing you have before you that frightens you is God. That should be the thing you worry about the most. I, I'm concerned about God. I've given so many illustrations on this in the past, but you know, it, the, the classic illustration is my own fear of my father and, and, and knowing that if I feared him, I, I could walk into any situation with my dad if I were rightly related with him as a kid and I didn't fear anything else. You can be fearless if you're ready to fear the right person. I don't fear him as the one casting me into outer darkness, but I desperately fear displeasing him. Do you, you, you need to fear that. And David lost that in the middle of Second Samuel. He regained it halfway through the book. And in the end of his life, he can say, I ruled in the fear of God. As a matter of fact, he states his own integrity in that, that he wasn't afraid of people. He wasn't afraid of nations. He wasn't afraid of oppressors. He wasn't afraid of the, the enemy on the battle lines, he was afraid only of God. If you're afraid of God and nothing else, and you're not afraid of getting fired, you're not afraid of losing money, you're not afraid of losing a client, you're not afraid of people being upset with you, but you're really humbly dependent on a God that you fear his approval. And I mean that in the biblical sense. If that's new to you, by the way, you can read, uh, go back to a classic like uh, John Bunyan's The Fear of God. Great book. People don't read that. They read uh, Pilgrim's Progress, which is good. I understand that. But the fear of God, the treatise on the fear of God is what it's called. You need to understand our call to see God as the great and awesome God. If you fear him, then you'll lead fearlessly because all you'll think about is the Bema Seat of Christ. Number 10. I read that passage in Psalm 78 about David being chosen from the fields, from nursing ewes, nursing lambs, brought to shepherd the people of Israel. And it says, with an upright heart, he shepherded them and he guided them with a skillful hand. He'd given credit for all the skill that he had. He, he'd understood God's involvement, that he's not going to dwell securely unless God does that. But I love that concept of having a skillful hand. He didn't learn the skill to do what he did in, in expanding the board of Israel without God, obviously, but mechanism was his work, his effort, his training. David was an upright and skillful person. And that, I think, should drive us always to say we need to be much better leaders in every area of our lives. We ought to, and I think it's a great line. We pray it often around here. We'd like to, number 10, lead with excellence. There ought to be an excellence about your leadership in your home, that you're thoughtful, purposeful, planning, strategic, that you're thoughtful at work as a skilled leader, I, I've said to people, so many people, I, I just recently in our extended family, I just want you to go into that job and be the best employee they've ever had. Right? I don't care if it's the lowest rung. I don't care what you're responsible for. If it's just answering phones, be the best at that you can possibly be. God is honored by us doing our jobs and our leadership and exercising dominion in the best possible way with excellence. Colossians 3.23 Whatever you do, whatever that role is, and he's just talked about the, the, the arrangements at work, masters and servants, he says, whatever you do, 
whether you're leading, whether you're serving, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. So often I've reminded young ministers, listen, if you're going to work in a church, if it's got a hundred people in it and you're to step up and teach or you're to put runoff bulletins for a hundred people or whatever it might be in your jobs, you better do that as though there's a thousand people there or 10,000 people there because you know who is there and that's God. God is the recipient of all of your work, which is much more important than the people you stand before and preach. You should, you should do all of your work heartily as for the Lord and not for people knowing, verse 24, that it's from the Lord you'll receive an inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord, the King, the boss, Christ, the Messiah. Ephesians 4 says we're to walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. We think of our moral life in that regard, and we're to lead in a manner that's worthy of Christ. And some of us need to rethink our family and our ministries and our workplace and know that, you know what, the world needs, you know what the marketplace needs, if we're going to restrain evil, we need better people doing the job you're doing. We need more Christian leaders in the marketplace. We need more Christian fathers in, in homes that really do parenting with excellence. We need more excellent husbands that lead their homes and their wives with real biblical excellence. We need better Christian leaders in the church. God would have us lead with excellence. And here's one thing about 2 Samuel that you should know. Just by reading 1 Samuel, God looked to replace Saul, a guy that everyone in the culture thought would be a great king, and he turned out to be a zero. And he said, let me pick the next one, a man after my own heart. And we have it held before us with all of his warts and wrinkles. And if you're thinking, God, I can't be a leader with excellence because I know my past, I know my faults, I know my frailties, that's why David, it's unlike any other ancient Near Eastern history of any other kingdom, we don't have the foibles and the sins and transgressions of ancient kings written from their national history, but we have it in God's word because God is holding up an example and saying, sure, you're, you're, you're men of flesh. I understand that. You, you have feet of clay. But God is a God that can take the bar of soap, right, that we have in Scripture, the forgiveness that comes from Christ, and we can confess our sins, and he's faithful and righteous to forgive our sins. And now he can say, oh, get out there and lead. Get out there and do what God has called you to do. And lead with excellence. Second Samuel is a study, obviously, of God and his grace toward the nation of Israel and ultimately the fulfillment of, Abrahamic, of the Abrahamic covenant to give us a savior and king. But I think you're going to find David in a very prominent place in the kingdom because the hailing of David by God that he's a man after God's own heart is not something that we sniff at, not something that we say is not important, not something in false humility we say doesn't matter. If David were in your presence, you ought to be respectful of that kind of leader. And God needs more leaders like that in our world and our lives. So I hope you're faithful between now and December to study with us. Please, it's going to get harder as the year goes on toward Thanksgiving, towards Christmas. Don't miss this. As a matter of fact, grab people from the patio that you see and say, are you in men's Bible study? And get them to men's Bible study this semester We'll do some good teaching in here, I trust, and we'll have some good heavy lifting that takes place in our small groups. And let's try and end this semester not only loving God more, but being more of the leader God would call us to be, more like King David. Let's pray. God, help us to work harder in our own spiritual disciplines, to love you, to humbly seek you, to be zealous for your honor, to want you to use us in any way you see fit, to be a leader in any capacity you'd like us to lead, to direct people in a way that you would say from heaven, that's good, that's it, that's what I want in that place. And God, if every Christian in our church, every man that hears, hears my voice right now would, 
resolve to do that? What a difference it would make. What kind of fulfillment of that Second Thessalonians passage would we have that, man, evil is restrained. Sodom and Gomorrah doesn't slide down the, the tubes as quickly because here is a church with people that are leading and making a difference, even among non-Christians in our neighborhoods, in our workplaces, in our families, who stand up for what's right, who are zealous for the honor of God. God, make us better leaders. And even with our frailties, even with our failures, even with the things that bring us shame in our own memories, may you get us over those things, past those things, fortify our spiritual lives, and let us lead in this imperfect world so that people might recognize the greatness of the king and be ready to meet him one day face to face, being the kinds of examples in this world that you call us to be. God, may our church never lack for strong spiritual leaders. May the families in our church Never, never have a dearth of, of real good fathers and husbands that love you and are leading in a real determined and thoughtful, decisive way. And God, no matter what the world says, no matter what people might say, let us have that humble heart before you seeking your best in every situation as far as it depends on us. In Jesus' name, amen.